Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Meryl Frank. Ambassador Meryl Frank is an international champion of women's leadership, human rights, and political participation. She's the former mayor of Highland Park, New Jersey, and was named one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. She serves as president of Makita Global Network and sits on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council and the Board of YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. She is the author of a new memoir, Unearthed, A Lost Actress, A Forbidden Book, and A Search for Life in the Shadow of the Holocaust. So welcome, Meryl. Thank you, Meryl. I'm delighted to be here. Great to have you. I've read your memoir, Unearth, and it is an extremely compelling and captivating memoir. And I'm excited to have this opportunity to speak with you today about it. So before we get to the book, I just want to ask you about the first name that we share. Now, every time I meet someone new and introduce myself, I always qualify it by saying, Meryl, like Meryl Streep. Right. So I'm always happy to find another Meryl. And I was surprised to find out in your memoir that you say you were named after your grandmother and that Meryl is a Yiddish name. I had no idea. So can you tell me about our name? Sure. I'm named, as I said, for my my grandmother, Meryl. Mm-hmm. Meryl, and sometimes it's spelled M-I-R-E-L-E or M-E-R-E-L-E, like Merle. Oh, I would Mer- always read or that Mira. as Merel. yeah. Um, it's a very, very common Yiddish name, and it's in Yiddish literature. It's in some of the plays that I've read, um, but a very common, it's for Miriam. Mm-hmm. But um, the way that you and I spell it, M-E-R-Y-L, I think is probably an American version. I mean, they were taking it from a, a Hebraic alphabet or a um, mm-hmm. Cyrillic alphabet. So it's really just the sound. But um, the most common way I've seen it spelled is M-E-R-E-L-E. Oh, okay. Merle. Okay, well, that that's that's really fascinating because I had looked up the derivation and it said Merrill was an English name meaning blackbird so right right yeah it has it has many different derivations and and in our case it's a Yiddish one very nice well I'm that that's very interesting so um, for our listeners who haven't read your memoir yet would you just give us a, a brief synopsis of it well what it's about in it's it's a long story, but in short, what it's about is it's a search for my family's history. I I was as a very young child, sort of designated as the one who would know the family history. I was told stories from 
as long as I can remember about where my grandparents lived in Vilna, which is now Vilnius, Lithuania. And I knew their street address, even as a child. Um, I was named for my grandmother. So in, in some ways, I think that they saw me as the one that would carry on her story. Mm -hmm. And um, so this stayed with me my whole life. The only thing is that they, when I would ask about what happened, you know, when the, what happened to them, they would say, they're all gone. They didn't make it. Right. And I spent hours and hours going through all, everything that we had that was connected to the family in Europe, photographs, artifacts. And there were, there was one in particular who just captivated my imagination. And it was my cousin, Franja Winter, who was an actress in the Yiddish theater. And you can imagine as a child seeing this woman in costumes as a gypsy or a queen or a peasant. Right. Um, she mm -hmm. just was so interesting to me. And the others were these very stiff, um, you know, the, the cabinet style portraits, you know, the no smiles, right. very serious, but she was alive. And she, she, I wanted to know what happened to her. And it was not until I was an adult that my aunt gave me a book. It was called 21 and one. And she said, I want you to keep this book I want you to hand it down to your children, but don't ever read it. And the book had a chapter about my cousin, Franja. It was published in Yiddish, so it wasn't easy to translate. And so I listened to my aunt and I put it on the shelf for 20 years. So, yeah, how did you, um, you, you went on a very lengthy journey to find out the truth about your cousin, Franja. And... I think the thing that amazed me most about um, your interaction with your Aunt Molly was that you honored her request not, not to read that book um, for so many years. You even had a Yiddish professor translate the book and he told you not to read it. Um, how, how did you discipline yourself not to read it? I mean, what, what drove you uh, to to try to unearth this story, to do all this research, but yet not look at the book. Well, um, if you knew my Aunt Molly, you'd understand. <laughs> and even though she was no longer alive, I still had fear. Um, she was a formidable woman and she was she was brilliant and loved us with all of her heart. And I thought that if she didn't want me to read it, there must be a reason. And, you know, I thought about it because I, I wanted to know. I was always very, very interested in this. And I thought, look, either her death was so horrific that my aunt didn't want me to read it, mm -hmm. or maybe she was a collaborator huh. and my aunt didn't want me to know that, or maybe she did something shameful to stay alive, which is what many people had to do. And she didn't think I needed to know that. So I even when I started doing this research, and that was eight years ago, um, I had the answers right on my bookshelf, but I didn't dare read it. And you know what, in some ways, it made me plunge even deeper into the archives and into every other source of information that well, I could find. Well, absolutely. You know, my I, aunt didn't say that I couldn't research for Anya. She just said I couldn't read that book. No, I mean, you do such intensive research over so many years. Why do you think she gave it to you if she didn't intend for you to read it? Or do you think she thought you would read it at some point? And 
when did you read it? About five years into your research or how many years right. into? That's right. Five years. It was, yeah. you know, I think in retrospect, I think that sh why would you give somebody a book if you didn't want them to read it? Exactly. Um, I think maybe she meant don't read it now. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I had four young kids. I was so busy. Maybe she meant this isn't the time to read it. It's not what she said. But I'm looking back, I think that that's what was going on. And, you know, it's, it was not very uncommon for people of her generation to not to, to try to shield their children from horror. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was really, um, you know, they, the word Holocaust really didn't even um, come into popular parlance until, you know, probably this, the seventies, the late seventies. Right. Um, tell us, I mean, I have to say, uh, as, as a researcher myself, I am in awe of your research process, which was um, a multi-year, multi-country journey. Um, what, what did you, what do you think you learned that, that you might not have learned if you had simply read 21 and 1 sooner? And tell us, tell us about your research process first. Okay. When, well, you know, I, I started doing this research after I received an email from the Memorial de la Shoah in Paris. That's their Holocaust Museum. Mm -hmm. And they wrote to me saying that someone brought in 50 photographs of an actress and her family. And they asked me if I knew the names. They sent the names. And of course I did. It was my aunt and my cousins. Mm -hmm. And so I flew off to Paris and looked at the photographs with them and I knew these people so I could tell them stories about all of them. Mm -hmm. And it was just very clear that there was a book here that I, ha I had a mission to write this book. And I returned home and, you know, no, oh, they, they said to me, we understand that you have a copy of the book 21 and one, would you send us, you know, would you copy it for us? And I said, of course. And they said, we'll translate it for you. And I said, no, I'm not allowed to read it. <laughs> And um, so I knew, look, I was doing this research with sort of both hands tied behind my back. And I knew that I needed to, I was lucky that my aunt was a notable character. She was an actress, my cousin, I'm sorry, my cousin was an actress. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, maybe there's some information on her. So I returned home and went to YIVO. That's the Institute for Jewish Research in New York. Mm -hmm. And I was mm -hmm. so lucky that there's a collection there that was left by Sutzkever and Kazerzinski. It's called their collection. It is the information, the documents that were buried beneath the Vilna ghetto. These were the book smugglers or the paper brigade they're known as. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, the Germans wanted to create a museum to the extinct people and they wanted to send the incredible, the the glorious holdings of the libraries in Vilna to Germany for this. And so they were written in Hebrew or Yiddish. And so they hide, they didn't hire, they used, employed, I don't know what the correct word was for their slave labor um, to come in and go through this material to send the good material to Germany, so to speak, and the rest of it would go to a paper mill. And what these librarians, the paper brigade understood 
was how important the cultural history of the Jewish people was. And at risk of death, they smuggled information back into the ghetto and buried it beneath the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, it was this information. Apparently, one of them was a theater historian. And she put in this collection information like actors union card, Yiddish actors union cards and playbills for plays and programs and and letters. And so there was information on Franya there in what had been buried beneath the ghetto. This was supposed to go to the paper mill. Mm-hmm. There was also information in their collection that had gone to, that was found by the monuments men um, in Germany. This was some of the stuff that they sent to Germany, they thought might be safer there. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, when the monuments men came in and found um, artifacts and art, and they also found papers, and this was among them. So I started off very lucky being in New, just in New York and being able to go to YIVO to find this tremendous trove of information. But then, you know, you come to, you come to some blocks. You know, I'd spent a lifetime doing family trees and, and trying to do family histories that way. So I knew the characters' names and the birthdays and some of the stories my aunt had told me. But I understood that I needed to know more. And I found through Ancestry.com and, and MyHeritage and all the other sites as much of the information that I could find. Um, I did have a diary that my aunt kept in 1932 when she visited the relatives. So I had more information there and her letters home. Um, I had those. But I decided I needed to go to both Vilnius to the archives there, the state archives, and find what I could find there. So I, I there I was able to find even more information. My cousin Franya's passport applications and her old, you know, you turn in your old passport when you get a new one. So they they had her passports. I was able to follow the trail of where she was when she was on stage all through Europe. Um, and I but found you didn't interesting. just go there once. You how many times did you go back to Vilnius? Oh gosh, um, maybe six or seven, maybe eight times. Yeah, it was one time after another. And you know, as far as being there being important, it's it's important to get documents. But so much of that is being put online now. Mm-hmm. My family's home was on Airbnb, mm-hmm. and. At first, I was afraid to stay there, but eventually I did. And let me tell you, just walking up the stairs and my hand was on the banister. I could see the banister had layers and layers of paint and it was original. Mm. And although the apartments had been turned into these gorgeous European style apartments, it was still the same floorboards. And still, it, I felt that I was in their home. Wow. So is and that why you like were- that? Afraid to stay there? I mean, why why were you afraid? You said at first you were afraid to stay there. I was afraid to stay there because I thought maybe there were ghosts. Oh. I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I knew the story. Um, I, I knew that my cousin went back there before she left. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid. What I realized finally was that if they're ghosts, they love me and I'm I'm okay. <laughs> Um, um, through this research, I went to Yad Vashem, I went to the Ghetto Fighters Museum, and it was the Ghetto Fighters Museum had testimony of people after the war, and I was able to find testimony 
of a woman who said she knew actress Franja Winters when she was killed, when she fought the Nazis and when they killed her. And that was in English. But the rest of the article was in Yiddish. And so it was something that I had to have translated. But um, I did that and learned a tremendous amount. Um, I also had, I hired people in through what, something called Upwork, which is a free, freelance um, site to do research for me um, in Russian newspapers, uh, Belarusian, Ukrainian, uh, Lithuanian, Latvian, um, in all of German and French newspapers for any mention of Franja Winter. And so I was very lucky to be able to do that sort of work because they found, they found um, critiques of her work on stage. And it was just amazing to be able to read that. So I was putting piece by piece, putting together a puzzle of her life. So it seems um, she was obviously a very uh, colorful uh, personality. Did you ever consider fictionalizing this story or, or did it just always have to be a memoir in your mind? Well, there a, a few people suggested that I fictionalize it early on, but you know, I felt very strongly that I wanted to honor her. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted it to be as much fact as I could find. Okay. And, um, and I was very, very strict with that because I thought that testimonies are so important. The stories that are created create worlds that we can step into. Um, I mean, fictional accounts that you can step into and understand the characters. And I hope you can do the same thing with Franya in this. Absolutely. What did writing this book mean to you? It was one of the most important things I've ever done, I guess, aside from my kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I had been obsessed with the Holocaust. I, it had been a, some, a sort of burden. Um, you know, it, I felt a responsibility because of it. My aunt taught me that, that I had a responsibility to essentially fix the world, which is an enormous burden to put on a small child. Yes. <laughs> but it was something, a reason why I went into political life and did the work that I did. It's the reason why I worked with refugees um, you know, why I've had refugees in my home. It's, it was all part of this obsession and I'm not sure if obsession is the right word, but this, this overwhelming um, sense that of injustice and that we have to always fight it. And working on this book was, was in some ways freeing. I think um, I was able to give a voice and give personhood and dignity to those people in my family that were lost. And in doing that, I, I had some of my own healing. Wow. So um, other, other than that, um, was there any particular message that you wanted readers to get from the book? Yes. And that is that these were real people with real colorful, passionate lives. They had hardships and they had joys. They were 
like us, that this, these are real flesh and blood and that horror happens when we don't stop it, when we don't stand up and speak out. This book is, is very, you know, there's a Holocaust story in it and it's sad, but the book doesn't end there. I didn't want that to be her, just the, her story to be the end of the book. And so I say, okay, now what? Now that we know what happened to her, now what? And so I, I interviewed my four children and I asked them, you look, you, you guys grew up in this household that was, you know, I talked about the Holocaust constantly. I mean, they were inundated with this. They would joke with me about it. Like no Holocaust books on vacation, mom. <laughs> <laughs> they, you, it's a joke in our house. You know, everything that I saw, I saw through Holocaust colored glasses. And so I was wondering, in, when I was growing up, there was so much silence. And there is around, I guess, any trauma in a family, but, but in particular about this. And so I wanted my children to know, but did that affect them? Did it make them paranoid? Did it make them afraid of their neighbors? And so I asked them that. I said, what did you think about Charlottesville, the March in Charlottesville or the Tree of Life Synagogue? And all four of them said they weren't surprised. And I was, I was happy about that because I do want them to be prepared. And that's why I taught them these about the Holocaust. But I said, but, you know, my constant harping on it, did it make you paranoid? And all four of them said, no. My daughters told me that when they were children, they would play the Holocaust game, which horrified me. Can you imagine? My little girls were taking their stuffed animals and hiding under the blankets. My goodness. Saying, they're going to come, they're going to come. And I just thought that I had sent them to therapist couch for the rest of their lives. Yeah. But they said, no. They said, this was a boogeyman game. And they're not paranoid. They know they... What it did for them was it made them aware, but it also gave them a sense. I get this was not my doing on purpose, but apparently I gave them the sense that they had responsibilities, that they they needed to be aware, but they also needed to speak out when they see hate or when they see injustices. They need well, to stand up and speak out. And I think that that is the most important message of the book. So uh, speaking of responsibility, um, I'm sure you grapple with the same questions that I and everyone else does about the Holocaust. You know, how did this happen? I, I still can't get my head around. I mean, I know the facts about how it happened, but how did it happen? Uh, you know, Germany was considered the most civilized and cultural, cultured country on earth at the time. How did this happen? And how did the whole Holocaust happen? And how can we prevent it from happening again? I mean, have you thought about it? Are there any answers to that question? Well, what I, what I always told my children, and I'm convinced of, is that this was not inevitable. Right. Something isn't inevitable. It means that if people stood up against it, it would not have happened. So it should, people should have spoken. People up. need to sooner, speak up. sooner had, should have. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And not, obviously not just Jews, everyone, when they see hate, they need to stop it. And that is what's so important. And I think that that was terrifying to my children 
um, you know, when when Donald Trump won the first the election, my daughter called me. I was in Israel. She called me and she was crying. And I said, what's the matter? She said, do you realize that the KKK is celebrating today? Mm. And that I realized then that my children did understand that they did have a sense of that there's a target on their back, just as there's targets on certain other people's backs. You know, if you're an African-American, you am sure you feel that as well. Um, but that they need to be sensitive to all sorts of injustice and they need to step up and say something when they see it. Because yeah. the reason that this happened, it was not inevitable, was that not enough people stood up against and, it. And in, including the United States, including, including the United Jews States. in the United States um, who didn't really uh, speak out or some did, but, but you know, you know, my son said something important, and that was my oldest mm -hmm. son, Isaac, said that he realized that people put their head in the sand and they don't want to see. And so what he learned from all of this Holocaust immersion <laughs> is that you have to keep your eyes open and be real about what's happening around you. That is, I think, you know, I because I told them stories of my cousins didn't want to leave Europe. They had beautiful lives. They, my aunt, my grandmother tried to talk her sister into coming to America, but she didn't want to. Yeah, that I think that was pretty. That that was probably typical of a lot of people. And think about it. I mean, if how many people would want to live their their lives anywhere if they were comfortable? I mean, that that's a very difficult thing thing to do so right. and, I thought they've been through it before it'll pass and it'll pass absolutely that's absolutely. right but I think that my kids got and that's that's the message of the book is that there's there's a holocaust story and that is meant to tell you about the real life of real people and in this case everybody's extraordinary but there's a great story with her, with Franya and her family and but really it's okay so what do we do with this information do we just so, read another book or do we take action? My kids brought up to me something that I thought was very, very important. And that is, they said that, yes, they understand the Holocaust and how, and how devastating it was and how alive some of this anti-Semitic hate is. But they also said that in their lives and for their generation, climate change is very much like a fear of the Holocaust. They're frightened mm -hmm. and they said to me mom there's holocaust deniers and there's climate deniers interesting and people are putting their head in the sand so what do we do how do we make changes how do we you know is this inevitable that's interesting i i want to just get back a bit to uh how long it took you to write the book and what was your writing process like you know with the uh, integrating all of this research into your writing and did you did you write every day for a certain number of hours or did you first do all the research and then start writing or had it had it work I was not very disciplined <laughs> um what you know I'm a speech writer I I'm a politician Mm -hmm. And so I did not know how to do this. I was, um, 
really lost. You know, when you write a speech, you write the essence of a story. You don't write the details. You want people to, when they go home, you want them to remember a message. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In a book, it's, it's the, it's the meat on the bones. It's the detail. And I had never done anything like that before. Um, So I went to some writing classes. I, you know, I wasn't sure what to do. And so I decided I would write it in speeches. Oh, that's interesting. I did a novel approach. Yeah, I wrote it in speeches in, and I write speeches in stanzas like poetry. Uh huh. Um, you know, sort of with breathing and and emphasis, and um, so I wrote it that way. But I also am I I am a historian at heart. When I handed in this manuscript to the publisher, they said, "Meryl, we wanted a memoir. This is a history book." Ah. So I had to take it back and do a lot of rewriting and put, they said, put your feelings into it. And so um, it, it was a process. It was um, not any, I tried writing eight minutes a day, writing two hours a day, writing only at night, writing only in the morning, right? I tried so many different tricks and um, really it was, I, I had a lot of friends helping me and reading things and, um, but really it was the speeches that got it all down. That's, that's fascinating. So how, how long did it take you to write the book? I was writing the whole time and researching the whole time. Ah, okay. I was writing vignettes. Um, I would say the last year I was still, I was in the last year, I found the key to all of the information. You know, when, when I got the photographs from the Memorial de la Shoah, on the flip side was writing in Yiddish and in French. And so I had all of those translated. I didn't realize until the last year of writing this book, when I went back just to look at everything over again, to look at the photographs, to see if I could see anything in their faces and what they were wearing, I realized one of the photographs I didn't have translated. It was in Polish. And it was the key. Oh. And I didn't find that till six years in. Mm. But um, that, you know, that sort of information just kept on unfolding. In the last year, I went and met some relatives that I found. It was going on the entire time. Okay. Uh, There was no discipline, believe me. (laughs) Do you want to talk a little bit about the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council or YIVO or how, how that sort of connected to your interest in the Holocaust? Well, you know, I I was appointed to the U.S. Holocaust Museum and I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't, I just got a call one day saying, would you like to be appointed to that? You know, I was involved in politics and mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know, I guess they needed a Jew and <laughs> I was yeah. there. Um, but the YIVO, I had spent a lot of time at YIVO doing research. I took two courses, um, one on the Yiddish theater and one on Lithuania and the Jews. I was in the archives. And so that was sort of natural for me. They have the second largest primary sources collection of Holocaust material in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an extraordinary collection of information and, and, and interesting, not just the Holocaust, but Yiddish culture and Jewish culture. It's about 
Jewish culture, keeping Jewish culture alive. And, and they tried to do more than the Holocaust, which I think is, is important. Um, the US Holocaust Museum, I think the most important thing about that is that 98% of the people that go through are not Jewish. That's interesting. And I think to have exposure for those people is just so, so very important. Uh, so I'm just curious, I, I got the sense from the memoir that you don't understand Yiddish, but did you learn any Yiddish in your research? And do you feel like you are a little more conversant in Yiddish as, as a result of this memoir? You know, I always knew some words and I always had a sense of it. It's interesting because my sister's, my sister calls Shabbat, Shabbat, and I call it Shabbos. Uh-huh. You know, the, the words that I use, I feel more comfortable in Yiddish than in Hebrew. It feels more natural coming out of my mouth. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know Yiddish. I can make, I can sort of understand also because it's so expressive. You know, right. I can tell, you know, when I'm in Morocco, I go there often. When I'm in Morocco, I can speak with people that speak Arabic and I don't speak Arabic. It's just when people use their hands and uh -huh. you can just understand. And um, so I have an understanding of basic, basic. I did study Yiddish in college also. Oh, um, you did. But I don't remember very much. It was that professor that I went to to translate Franya's chapter in 21 and 1, and he was the one that told me not to read it. Why do you think he told you not to read it? Be because of the gruesome nature, but isn't everything in the Holocaust kind of... You would think so. Gruesome, I right? think it must have been because of the way that she died. Uh-huh. Um, and, and look, he was part of that generation that said, look forward, even though he was a he was a Yiddish scholar. His name was Moshe Moskowitz. He was immersed in that world. Um, and I think they wanted to spare me. You know, I, we do this with our children. We, we say, we tell them to be careful, to not go near the fire, to not run into the street. You know, I think it's important that we tell our children about targets they're on their back too, that they need to be prepared. It's what I call the talk. African-Americans call their talk a talk that they have with their children. You keep your hands on the steering wheel if a police officer stops you. You mm -hmm. say, yes, sir. It's not something I have to say to my white children or my Jewish children. Um, but I do tell my children that there are, that I talk to them about anti-Semitic incidents. And I and talk what, to them about the way it is in the world. Yeah, what's your feeling about the, escalation it seems like of anti-semitic hate crimes and incidents in in the last few years i think that we have there's no other way to look at it than to say that our politics has become has allowed this it's allowed uh, and maybe that was always there under the surface and all you need to do is have a leader that say it's okay that mm -hmm. says it's okay to have people say, all right, I'm gonna stand up and say this, but um, it's not acceptable. And it's not acceptable to say there's good people on both sides, it's just simply not acceptable. And I think that that's, we have to stand up. We have to say this is happening. 
you know, my children have had examples because I travel all around the world. You know, I've been in Afghanistan and in, you know, in the Middle East, I've worked, you know, in, in Muslim majority countries. And, you know, I, I never said that I was Jewish. I didn't deny if anyone asked me, but I didn't point it out. And in many ways, I felt like I was the one behind the veil. So I know that feeling. And I know that certainly around the world, it's not so subtle as it is in the United States. Um, and I would tell my children about that. I mean, it's important that we know that you don't go wearing a Jewish star everywhere. Isn't that awful? And yeah. even in New York, there are police officers outside of the shuls. And we stop noticing this. It's, it's, it really, it really is, is frightening. Um, we're going to uh, be wrapping up soon, Meryl. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Well, I'd love to, what I'd love to share is I'd love to share with Meryl having an opportunity for the two of us to, to talk about, about our books and how they intertwine and, and, oh, wow. and why we do this work, what, how it's meaningful, both you and I, because yeah. your, your, um, your work is kind of an obsession just as mine is. It total it, it totally is. And um, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I inherited uh, that, memorial candle although I you know I, I I well neither of us are children of holocaust survivors and you know at the at the beginning with with my first book the takeaway men I always sort of apologize for that and um now I don't now I think it's it's an important story to tell and as long as uh you do the research and in your research is meticulous and it's all accurate. Um, I, I think we all need to tell, to tell the story. There is communal memory. Yes. That's something that, look, we, we teach our children that they were slaves in Egypt. We Absolutely. teach our children. Absolutely. So this is part of our communal memory. Uh, it's interesting also, um, I know that when I was in school, there was, I can't remember hardly any mention of it. And then it seems my children um, got a big dose of it. But now I, I, I think, what is it the number that there are only 17 states that require Holocaust education? Is that? I thought it was. 22 but what it doesn't matter 22 what, by now that that was years ago yeah it could be 22 but you know that's out of 50 states so that's that's um you know I wonder I wonder if it's effective because we have more holocaust education and even in those states that have the holocaust education we have an increase in anti-semitic attacks so is, are we teaching it the right way? Are we, what are the lessons that we're learning? I know that my children had it in fourth grade. Um, in New Jersey, it's mandated. Mm -hmm. And my son's teacher was this wonderful black woman with long dreadlocks. And the parents were, one of the parents was complaining that their child was crying at night during this, this section. 
And she said, they should cry at night. It's scary. It's horrifying. And no child that ever goes through my class will ever participate in anything like this. And she made such an impression on me. Um, I think that, that it's scary and they've got to know there's scary things in the world. That's okay to tell our children the truth. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. there's no best practices. You have to know your child, but we have to, we have to tell our stories. No, we, we have to. And that's why I, I mean, my, my book, both books are adult books, but I do think um, that both the takeaway men and shadows we carry um, have been read and, and can be read certainly um, by teenagers. And it was suggested to me so that, that, you know, sometimes um, that can also be an effective way of, of teaching, you know, youngsters yeah. about it. There's a little more color in it. Diary um, of Anne Frank had an impact on people all around the world. Oh my goodness. It had an impact on me. That, that is what triggered my lifelong, if we're using the word obsession, you used it, I'll use it too. My lifelong obsession uh, with with the topic of the Holocaust. And I, I read it in the sixth grade. And, you know, ever, ever since then, I have really been studying it. I've been um, reading everything I can, watching every film that I can. Carol, you know what? I just listened to it on Audible. Really? And it was wonderful. Did you see a small light? Did you see the I did, I did. Oh, wasn't that wonderful? Excellent. But I listened to it as an adult and it's it's the unabridged, it's 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 the unedited version now. Mm -hmm. And it was fantastic as an adult. So I recommend reading it again. I read it again about three years ago. Um, but I I I don't know. I'm not that much into Audible. Do you read a lot of Audible? I mean, do you hear? I, I was going to mention to you about your book. It's not on. The first one is the no, second. Isn't yet. No, it's not yet. Um, I love. I love listening to books. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And mine is on Audible. Yes. Uh, uh, and you didn't narrate it yourself, or did you? I did not. I did oh. not. I, you know, I thought I had so much to learn just to write it, that um, learning a whole new uh, way of, of communicating it was a little bit much for me, but um, I did think about it. Wow. And I've listened to my own book, which is, is interesting, with someone else's voice. Well, <laughs> I started listening to my first book, and I couldn't listen to it anymore, so I don't know. I don't know. I I guess I have to get with the get with the program. <laughs> to me, I I read. You know, I read and I couldn't sleep last night. I read on Kindle in the middle of the night, and I but I still like the feel of a print book during mm -hmm. the day when I'm not disturbing my husband. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I understand. I understand. Wow. Um. So, where um. What's next for you? Or or is this it? Is there another book in you? Or um well, right now I thought that I would give it a year to promote this book. Um, you know, there's a message in it, and we we talked about the message, and that is what do you teach your kids? 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that that's important. And so I want, I don't want this to just sit on shelves. I want it to get out there. I love talking with book groups. That has been wonderful. And I have um, events out until May. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm happy to go and speak at, at any venue. I, I've been to, to Shul's and to JCC's and I'm going to London next week for the International Conference on Jewish Genealogy. I'm, I'm giving a presentation there. One wow. of the most interesting ones that I did was the National Genealogical Society Conference. I was their luncheon speaker. Mm. And that was so interesting because very few, if any, people in the audience were Jewish. And I know because as I sold books, people were were telling me, you know, that they had a Jewish friend they were giving it to, or they knew, you know, they were interested in this subject, but it was not theirs. And it was fascinating how much interest there was there. And the great questions. Wow. Yeah. I, it's, it's really, it's really great to, um, to connect with, uh, with readers and and prospective readers. So where where can people find you online? At uh, merylfrank.com. Okay. um, They can, there I have um, information on the background of the book and photos and lots of reviews. Luckily there've been fabulous reviews and I I just feel so grateful for that. And, um, and it's just been a new crazy ride and, and really very healing, which is, the most wonderful thing about it, that I, I feel that I was able to give them their personhood back, their dignity. That's wonderful. That That's wonderful. So, okay, just, just one more. We started out, I mentioned Meryl Streep. Do, do you mention Meryl Streep when people ask you? I do, but she was originally <laughs> named Mary Louise. I know. I know that I she's not an original Meryl. So now I can say like Meryl Ain. <laughs> like Meryl Frank. No, I I know that she's Mary Louise also, but um that people people get that, you know, yes. people 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 understand that. Okay. It's not like Merle Haggard, it's like Meryl Streep. Oh, Merle. Were you right. called Merle as a child? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, my just goodness. people you know they can't pronounce it properly but, um, <laughs> but they can pronounce Cheryl I don't know that's true I know right. I have never thought of that but yeah. Meryl we have to do a Meryl show absolutely go on the road with the Merrills because the books complement you know one one fiction one non-fiction oh I'd love to do that that would be great Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Meryl Frank. Thank the you, book, this was delightful. Thank you. The book is Unearthed, A Lost Actress, A Forbidden Book, and A Search for Life in the Shadow of the Holocaust. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, people of the book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, is available now. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book. <laughs>